your entire life is millions of micro decisions that, that you don't realize at the time are all so small, but they really add up to who you are or what you stand for, or what your life looks like. Never underestimate the power of your decisions, especially the little decisions you make each day. How you go about making decisions offers so much data about you and what you believe about yourself and the world around you. Many of us second guess our decisions because we're unsure of ourselves in the first place. And maybe you underestimate your ability to do hard things or give added weight to the anticipated judgment of others when they learn about decisions you make. But most often, I suspect you second guess your own ability to do the hard things and feel the hard things. And we definitely question how those around us will respond to our decisions, right? But if we're too protected from feeling vulnerable or our worthiness is wrapped up in the metrics or the opinion of others, then we'll continue to be disconnected from our purpose and our courage. And more importantly, you'll be disconnected from making the decisions that support the life you are building and those you are leading. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. It is easy to underestimate the power of your decisions, especially the little ones. Now, Younger Rebecca had a hard time feeling the weight of all the decisions I was making. I knew what I wanted and went for it, even when I was terrified it would not work out or I would fail. Now, it's interesting to look back on how I made decisions. I would go for the things I wanted, usually go for it and then figure it out later. And I would feel the fear of failure and things not working out. I was also, as I recall in all this, I was more afraid of living with regret than failure. And this posture fueled me getting a job in Washington, D.C. before I even graduated college. It also fueled taking a big career U-turn after accepting a job in Europe because of a deep longing to see the world. Going to graduate school at the age of 30 felt reckless to so many. Oh my gosh, so many people were worried about me. And it truly was scary for me, but it made sense to me. So I just moved forward. And some of that was the hubris of being young and a brain that was still developing. I just went for something regardless of the naysayers who were always loud. <laughs> but then as I grew older, I felt a bit more caution set in. I internalized the naysayers more than I liked. And the echoes of the doubts of others piled on my own doubts. My marriage, kids, a mortgage, retirement plans, yeesh, the weight of adulting <laughs> and of all my decisions now feel heavier than ever. Making decisive decisions with clarity and confidence required me to develop a few important practices refined over time with some scrappy determination and my own deeper healing. And this has informed so much of my work with clients too. First, not underestimating the power of your decisions requires the ability to stay present and connected to the why that feels what I do. Practicing presence helps me navigate the paralysis of overthinking and comparison. They still show up, let me tell you, but they don't lead me like they used to. It also keeps me from meandering through work and life, reacting and responding to everyone else's life instead of my own unique path, because that is exhausting. Presence supports my ability to stay focused so I can stay the course and not stray to what 
looks like the easier thing, the more comfortable thing or the more exciting thing. And whether it's the comfort of Netflix or the promise of bigger success and reach, focus helps make the decisions that matter, even when the temptations to deviate from that focus are so big. And presence and focus clear the way for the decisions that support my belief in what's possible and what's not okay. Belief is what I call on when crisis and failure inevitably happen. Belief moves me to get up, collect the data of the pain of the falls, and then keep taking decisive and meaningful action that support what matters most to me and my work. Now, my guest today never underestimates herself or saw a problem she could not tackle with zeal. Her sense of responsibility towards those in her charge, combined with the deep early born desire to never be beholden to anyone, fuels her approach to the decisions she makes and how she problem solves. Audrey McLaughlin founded luxury clothing brand Frank and Eileen, and it's one of my favorites. Oh, I love, love her stuff. Borrowing her grandparents' names, Audrey sourced traditional suiting fabrics from the finest family-owned mills in Italy to reinvent the woman's button-up, a category that had previously been focused solely on men. Frank and Eileen quickly became a favorite with cultural icons such as Meghan Markle, Oprah Winfrey, and Kamala Harris, and is now a global retail brand. She is a four-time entrepreneur who has bootstrapped all of her companies without ever taking outside funding. Now listen for Audrey's mindset when the shutdown happened last spring and how that helped her weather the storm of losing, catch this, $11 million in sales in two weeks. I just had chills run up and down my spine every time I read that stat. Pay attention to when Audrey talks about how the burdens from her childhood fuel her resilience instead of taking her out. And notice what Audrey says are the two most valuable commodities for an entrepreneur and for all of us and how she saw an opportunity on the other side of the triage from the crisis instead of being paralyzed by indecision or waiting for things to go back to normal. You are in for a masterclass conversation today. This may be a conversation for you to listen to on repeat because I know already I already have. All right. Now join me in welcoming Audrey McLaughlin to the Unburdened Leader podcast. This is an honor. I've been following you and your company for a while. And I'm just like obsessed with everything. And obsessive probably is like so overused, but really delight is probably a better way. Your branding, like I'm like, I think I want to move into their store. I think I'll move in. Well, the first part, I'm so flattered. But the second part, it's so funny how many people say that when they come visit, like you come in off the gritty streets of downtown LA and walk and you walk into this magical Irish country house and almost everyone goes, I want to live here. Yes. I'm like, me too. I totally want to live here. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strong transformation. It's magical. Well, I I have so much to learn from you today and it was so hard to narrow down the questions because there was so much I wanted to ask you. So if it's okay, I want to jump in right kind of taking us back to almost a year ago, back to March 2020, when everything in the world felt like shut down. I'm curious for you, what was going through your head as the situation at hand really came into focus? Yeah, it's such interesting timing. You know, we're literally coming almost on the one year anniversary, right? right? So that in itself causes a lot of reflection. And what I hear myself saying is that I never, 
ever want to go back to March 2020 ever again. Um, you know, that was that was one of the most intensely shocking moments of my life. There were a lot of tears and a, a lot of fear, um, at, you know, initially. And for us, there was a, a large part of our business is, is our wholesale foundation of all our partners that we've had for many, many years, most of them going back 10, 12 years. And but in a 10 day period in March, we lost a hundred and we got 130,000 units canceled oh. that were already in production. So that added up to over $11 million that we lost, like almost virtually overnight, right? So we literally watched in a 10 day span an entire year's worth of work evaporating. Um, entire seasons and collections that we designed needed to be canceled. And so we, we went into like bunker mode for, I think, 16 days. We probably worked, you know, 14 hours a day around the clock, seven days a week, doing re- minimizing the damage that was done to our supply chain partners, um, right? Because obviously, when we get the orders canceled, we then have to turn around and figure out how to do damage control in our supply chain, where in the production cycle everything is going back from, you know, yarn to knitting to spinning, I mean, everything all the way to finished goods. So it took a long time, you know, these like 16 days of overdrive to really figure out where everything was and how to minimize the damage not only to us, obviously, but it's very important for us to minimize the damage to our supply chain partners. We all want to come out of this alive at the other side. So that was intense. And I feel like um, it was interesting because I just put on blinders and we did it. And it, it really, you know, showed the strength of the team that we had built. And wow. just we built a team of warriors. Right. And this is when we really got to test ourselves. And uh I feel like I feel like I remember my my mom was probably like holding her breath. She lives three thousand miles away, and my tiny little Irish mom. And she called one day, and kind of could hear like, "Pet, you know, are you going to be all right?" And by then, I was able to kind of look up, and I said, "You know what? It's actually times like this that I have an advantage." And it it like gave me that feeling like I'm ready to fight. Um, you know, I'm tough as nails, and so sometimes I think. Um, I kind of really enjoy these very high stress situations. And I feel like I have an advantage over a lot of other entrepreneurs and a woman that's worked with me for 15 years now. She's been there since Frank and Eileen started. But before that, uh, she affectionately calls me a masochist. So she she knows when stuff like this happens, she starts laughing. She's like, oh, Audrey's ready for this. You know, you know, so. I think a lot of people that don't get entrepreneurship, it's it's a mindset. It's a way of being. It's like this thing that comes from the inside out, they, it may look like masochism, but it is like (laughs) a way of living and it, and, and not every entrepreneurship or being a business owner is in a bunker, um, or, you know, having to put your blinders on, even though I know many sadly live that as the norm, that's not sustainable, but I want to get a little granular. You talked about getting into bunker mode and I actually read as I was prepping for this interview, you had called yourself a, a wartime CEO. So, you started mm-hmm. talking a little bit about that, but I, I think that's so important, especially I know for many people listening, because this is just part of the gig of daring to step up and to take ownership of something, whether it's small or as big as Frank and Eileen. Um, but yeah, so tell me a little bit more what wartime CEO means to you and to your team. I think for me, immediately, you know, this happens so fast, right? This was not like a normal course so of business. So fast. Like over- <laughs> We just like hit a stone wall, right? So, but for me, I think that the difference is that 
I, I was very conscious that I couldn't waste any time waiting for things to go back to normal. Mm. And that's what I heard a lot of people talking about or a lot of leaders like, when will it go back to normal? Mm. When will we open back up? When? It's like, that's over. Yes. I remember having regular um, virtual calls with my team at the time where everything was unknown, right? Everything. But I feel like I allowed probably a week to go by maybe 10 days or that two weeks that we were in damage control. And I remember getting on the phone and I said, everyone needs to understand this. We are never going back to normal. That's over. We're now going to create a new normal. You know, you, you can have a blip and you can go back to normal, but I could immediately tell, and maybe it's even having gone through, you know, Frank and Eileen was literally born in the dawn of the great recession. Mm -hmm. And so even having gone through that, this is so different, but you, you, you know, you kind of get a sense like this is one of those defining moments that we're not going back to normal. There's going to be a whole new normal. And the faster you can adjust to that, you know, the the stronger you're going to be. So I kind of looked around and I mean, I'm talking for months and months, could really see a lot of other leaders were, were paralyzed. And this is where I feel like we have an advantage. Like I immediately move into action. We made some very hard decisions very fast, mm. like within a week or two of COVID happening, we slashed budgets, we paused huge projects, like we just made very hard decisions and made sure that I was really transparent with our team and, you know, asking everyone to lean in and, you know, you know all of us fight together to make sure we all come out stronger on the other side. And um, so that, you know, that was how we started the journey. And I think we just, you know, it served us very well. But I think a lot of people, you know, if you didn't go into wartime CEO, you were you were giving it too much patience. Like, let's see what happens. And I don't want to make any hard decisions. Maybe it'll go back to normal. And um, we skipped that whole step. I really appreciate you saying that because I was watching. Uh, I've got friends who owned restaurants here in the neighborhood. So my mom friends that own restaurants and other business owners. And I was watching how folks were either in that camp of let's just wait and see to, all right, let's take action. And there was something so powerful about the quick, you know, iteration and creativity and innovation and just making, like you said, those hard decisions to pause, to cut the budgets instead of, and there is such a strong pull for us as humans to want to have status quo, to want to have, you know, just, I don't, they don't want the fear of change, but I feel like this is really, I saw people rise up and the businesses that, not all of them, I think some are just really just, it just wasn't fair at all. But the folks that really have pulled through um, made that real short term right away, quick decision. But see, this is what blew me away, though. It's like towards the end of the year, I got, you put this announcement out that you decided to become B Corp certified. And not only that, you made this huge commitment to do, mate, to raise $10 million in 10 years and already raised multiple six figures in the year of COVID. So can you unpack that yeah. a little bit? I just thought, okay, this is a badass company. <laughs> I want to know more because I think that's how people think I'm frozen. I got to wait, but no, you dug in and went even deeper to be more aligned to your values. So can you talk more about that and how you yeah. like get your brain around that <laughs> during everything that's been going yeah, on this so, last year? You know, in the timeline, like I said, we had this 10 day period where you know we lost $11 million. Then mm. we spent another two weeks doing very, very strategic damage control for supply chain. And I remember, I remember feeling this excited anxiousness halfway through and kind of telling my other team, like, be ready. I'm ready to start brainstorming what the opportunities Ooh. are here, but I have to, I have to, I have to protect my supply chain first. But the second I'm finished, we're going to, we're going to figure out how to make lemonade. Like 
designer lemonade out of these lemons, right? There's got to be opportunities here and I want to brainstorm what they are. So quickly, you know, I guess the way that I end up boiling it down when it's easier to look back, you know, hindsight's 2020. I, sure. I always say that when you're growing a business, you have two finite resources, time and money. And, and all of a sudden, the, pande- the pandemic gave us this resource that we've never had before, which was time. All of a sudden, we had this bonus of extra time. So immediately, I wanted to focus like, okay, how can we create an opportunity uh, out of having this resource that we haven't had before? What can we do with this extra time? Um, and so then that became really exciting because, you know, the other things I talk about is that your entire life is you know, millions of micro decisions that, that you don't realize at the time are also small, but they really add up to who you are or what you stand for, or what your life looks like. So the same goes for a company. And I, I'd always felt like all the micro decisions that we'd made over the last 12 years of building the company really added up to the fact that we built a B Corp. And now all of a sudden we actually had the resource of time to go through the certification process, which is quite arduous um, and very time consuming. And that's something we just didn't have the bandwidth and resources. And now all of a sudden we did. So we buckled down and that was our big initiative for the year. And I said, I absolutely want to be able to have something happy to end the year with. I want good news. Like, be you know, uh, the mm. pandemic has affected everyone globally. This is not a California issue. This is not a U.S. issue. You know, it, it's, it affects everyone all over the world. And I just really hung on to this idea that I would love us to have some really happy, exciting news to end the year with, to share with our community and customers. And so, um, yeah, we worked incredibly hard to go through the B Corp process and get certified. And what we had no idea would happen, like, I think we always just knew in our gut, like all the decisions we made add up to what a B Corp is and what it stands for. And it, and it is a very holistic process. You know, you can't just be sustainable. You have to be all of these different things in a 360 holistic way of, you know, h- how you build your company, how you operate, how you hire people and, you know, all of these things. And uh, what we didn't expect is that we'd end up getting the 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 second highest impact score in the entire U.S. apparel industry and that we got the highest impact score of any woman-owned, woman-led um, wow. company in the apparel business. So that, you know, what I, what we were, we were, I was pushing so hard for happy news at the end of the year for our community. What I didn't anticipate is what that result was going to do for our team, right? That sense of pride that our team had to, you know, to be able to say, wow, we had no idea that our impact score would be so high, you know, second only to Patagonia. And then the highest, we all have a wow. lot of pride about being women owned and women led. We have 100%, um, 100% of our leadership team is is women. And we, you know, we're very proud about that. And so to have the highest impact score of any woman owned apparel company in the US, like that just, I think, was everything that, you know, you have an exhausted troop of teams who've been fighting through this pandemic and, and overcoming all these hurdles. And I think that was just this amazing, um, you know, satisfaction at the end of the year to kind of carry us through the end of the year and start a new year. So that that was magical for sure. I'm so struck by this, like, you know, your instincts kicking in with the panda, the shutdown. There's a part of you that says, holy cow, we're going to have some time here. Heads up. Let's let's play here. First, we got to figure out this stuff and do triage. 
And then let's take like, what are we going to do at this time? But it was just so, it was almost reflexive. It sounds like that's powerful. And I did not know that it was that the second highest apparel company in the States next to Patagonia and the highest for hundred percent women. It was super exciting. It's interesting because, you know, some people are, are, you know, are very involved and know everything about B Corp and they love it. And then other people, you know, it's not maybe as widely known as it is going to become over the next few years, I would say. But what people do know, if, if you say, oh, we're B Corp certified and you see that look, you say, if you mention Patagonia, everyone understands what you mean then, right? So, I mean, it's such an honor. Sure. I mean, we're a distant second to them. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it's such an honor to even be, you know, second to them because they've done such an incredible job making an impact in the fashion business and the apparel space that everybody knows what they stand for and what they're doing. So that helps give context to the importance of the certification. Then people are like, oh, I, I know what that means. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not like something where you just hashtag B Corp certified and you just could claim it, you know, like so many people do. Like you said, it's tedious. And a lot of people in the entrepreneur space, this is there's like some folks just want the flash and the quick and easy. And there's there's ways to do that. But the long game is the grind. And so there's just something really powerful about I, I love that you recognize that you had built a company that really embodied that. And so just to get that you know, acknowledged. Uh, I'm excited to see um, what comes of that in the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the older I get and the, the further I get into my career, I think the more I realize what my engineering background, like how often it 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 kind of pops up as being instrumental in in the way that I think or the way I do things. And I think, you know, ultimately as an engineer, to me, certifications matter. So I think it's mm. so interesting how that ends up tying into this new modern digital world because, you know, customers get can get very confused, right? I mean, anyone can have a marketing budget and start talking about sustainability and this, and the customer gets very confused. And how is she supposed to know what's real and what's surface level? Like, are you truly sustainable? Are you truly, or do you have like one you know, one organic cotton program that you're spending a million dollars marketing. It gets very confusing. And so I thought this is where it kind of ties into that. Like, you know what? Certifications do matter. You can't just say you're an engineer. You actually have to have an engineering degree, right? So um, for us, it's like you can say you're sustainable. You could say you do everything that meets the standards of a B Corp, but you can't until you have that certification it, you know, that's a, that's a totally different ballgame. So that really separates out, I think, companies that have maybe sustainable aspects or, or that it's, you know, mostly marketing driven, but there's, yeah. I mean, the number of people, I wish I had the statistic for you. Um, the, the, I mean, there's a huge number of people that have applied for B Corp. It's something like 1% of people make it through and there's less than 50 apparel companies that have actually gotten B Corp certified. It's a very, very small number. Wow. Yeah. And as I've been digging into just this whole concept of fast fashion and where the intersection of, you know, labor and the environment, you know, I've been thinking about consuming and this year it hit me to consume less, but that what I'm consuming, I want to look at what people are creating and how they're creating. I want, you know, so I think that consumption and creation, they really taking a look at that holistically and, it just, it feels so aligned what I see your company doing and it inspires me and I know so many to go, okay, 
let's just not be consumers and create things that we can just churn in and churn out. Right. This shirt I'm wearing, I'm wearing a Frank and Eileen shirt. I will have this forever. I know I will. You and know? it gets better and you're wearing our famous denim and it gets better every year, right? I mean, it gets, the indigo fades, it gets beat up, it gets softer. It's incredible. And I wanted to make an analogy that, you know, we talked about uh, when we first talked that we grew up in the 80s, right? And so mm-hmm. for me, when I grew up in the 80s, as a kid, we went and we ate fast food. And in the 80s, I think we actually thought that was food. And we realized later that fast food is not food, right? It's fast food. And so I think now it's time for us to realize that fast fashion is not fashion. You got it. It's like fast food, right? I mean, there's no nutrients in it. It's not sustainable. You, that is, that's just, you're not going to be a healthy individual or have a healthy planet if we're living off fast food and fast fashion. We need, we need help, right? You would never in a million years now tell your kids that you think like a McDonald's cheeseburger for 99 cents is a nutritious balanced meal. You would never, you would never even think that. So I think we have to change our mentality of how we think about fashion. We need to be using the right ingredients to make our food and make our fashion. And we need to, you know, be more intentional about what we're eating and what we're consuming. And um, who is making it and selling it too, right? Absolutely. I think that, you know, the humans. I think that's the reason, I mean, you, you basically are speaking to it right now, Rebecca, of why it's so hard for fashion companies to become B Corp certified, because there are so many people involved in the ecosystem of bringing a brand to life that, that B Corp requires you to have full transparency, right? From seed to finish. And there's so many people involved that all of them have to be operating at that standard to, to meet the standards of B Corp. And, and that's very challenging for, for most businesses. And I think scary. I think the word transparency is really scary to a lot of people yeah. um, to really be seen I mean, we live in a culture where people critique for blood sport yeah. and, you know, and, and, you know, instead of calling up or in, we want to cancel and that's, you know, all of that stuff that's going on. But I feel like the leaders that can say, Hey, here I am and let's learn together. Right. You know, that's an engagement. That's a different type of relationship. Um, that's a long, that's a lifelong relationship. Right. So you're right. Um, word, and, and, you know, we feel that, you know, you're, Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, for us, like we've been, we've been living this way for 12 years, but because we didn't put it out in a certification, it wasn't scary, right? And once mm-hmm. you put it out there, you, we, I do, I feel vulnerable, right? Like I'm going to make for mistakes. sure. And it's, you know, you worry that in this digital world, like you said, where people are out for, you know, it's like a blood sport. It makes us very vulnerable. Like we have to make sure that, that everything we do is being looked at under a different light and, and, you know open ourselves to, to extra levels of criticism or questioning. And so that's something that we're, and we're a tiny team, right? So we're always thinking about that stuff. And, um, but I think, you know, obviously the, the positives outweigh the risk or the negatives, but, you know, being all aspects of being an entrepreneur are scary and exciting at the same time. So it's, it's a lot to hold. It's a lot to hold for sure. So I'm just curious, even just to bookmark as we're coming, like you said, coming up to the one year anniversary of this, the first official shutdown here in the States, what have you learned about yourself and your business? What are some of your key takeaways from this this year? That's a good question. And I'm doing a lot of, like I said, I'm doing a lot of reflecting coming up to this year. Um, and the big, I think the biggest takeaway, it's, it's amazing how much has changed in a year, right? Um, but a year ago today, 
like if someone had asked me if I could run this business and run the brand virtually from home with all of my employees working virtually from home, I would have said, absolutely not. Like it's not even possible. And I've got this, this thing running in the background where I have a five-year-old daughter and five and a half. And for five and a half years, this woman, Danielle, that's been with me for 15 years now, um, has literally been yelling at me for five and a half years to work remotely one day a week. First, she was trying to get me to work remotely two days a week. And she gave up on that years ago. And I would just hear in my head, Audrey, just one day a week. It's just one day. And I'd be like, okay, I'm committing like each quarter, each year, I'm going to commit. I'm going to work remotely one year. I mean, one day a week so I can focus on other things. And it would never happen. Never. And she would get mad at me. She's the one that calls me a masochist. Um, she would get mad at me and I'd say, I'm trying. I just, it's this meeting and this collection and this, and I would just tell her it's impossible. I can't possibly do it. I, I have to be in the showroom and in the environment with the team. And so here I went from for five years saying, I can't even work remotely one day a week. It's not possible. We went to working remotely every day for a year and we didn't survive. We actually are thriving. Like we're significantly noticeably stronger now than we were 12 months ago. Maybe in every aspect, our product is visibly stronger. You'll see all this amazing stuff coming out throughout the year. Our brand is stronger. We're B Corp certified. Our photography is stronger. Our communication is stronger. And I'm just sort of almost left like my eyes popping out of my head. Like something I would have thought was not possible ended up we because we had to rethink everything, right? It's not like you just switch to work to working remotely, we had to rethink the entire business and rethink everything and go. So a year of being this like wartime CEO and rethinking everything um, that worked out really well for us. We're stronger than ever. So I'm, I'm kind of grateful for the pain that we went through last March. Yeah. And, and really the integration of work and home life, really things that are important to you came clear. I'm curious when you, we move forward and things start to really open up and and at least here in California, where we both live, things have been pretty locked down and still are, you know, they're slowly opening up. What are some things that are going to still like, what, like, are you going to still work from home a lot more? What do you think is going to be real stick for the long term? Yeah, that's the next thing to, to figure out, you know, how many things will all uh, adopt long term, you know, from this, like we'll never go back to normal. And it's, it's interesting because early in the pandemic, you know, I feel like people would ask me all the time, like, well, how's your daughter? How's Grayson? And I'm like, Grayson loves the pandemic. Like we we're in the kitchen one day and someone asked her, she's doing, she's like, I love coronavirus because my mommy gets to see mm. everything I'm doing every day. Wow. And, you know, it was this intense thing where you realize like, wow, I'm, I'm never home. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always at work coming home from work. I see her for a few minutes in the morning when she wakes up and a few minutes to tuck her into bed at night. But you know, kids go to bed really early. So I'm really not there during her waking hours. And so now for a year, for this very important year of, of in her development, I've been around every day and that's been completely life changing for, for her and for me and our relationship. And, um, but it's interesting, you know, everybody has kind of a different point of view. Like there's a certain, even within our team, there's certain people who are begging to come back every single day. They want the structure of being in the office every day and they don't want to work from home. And then there's other people who are, you know, love what we're doing and they want to work remotely forever. And then I, so I think there's going to be some sort of hybrid is what I ultimately think. I think, I think we've learned that the people that are really, really strong on your team are strong, whether they're in person or remote and that, 
and that we've all kind of earned the freedom and flexibility to take ownership of our role and make sure as long as you get the job done, we can build in more flexibility than before. Wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot around trust too. If teams trust everyone's doing what they're doing, there's been a lot written about that. Um, that sometimes people just want to trust, but they don't trust if they don't see it. And I'm like, that's not trusting that's micromanaging and that's not healthy leadership. So yeah, I'm really excited to see what businesses do and how they integrate instead of trying to, like we talked about the beginning, go back to normal, mm-hmm. how they can integrate and integrate the pros of this. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So again, prepping for our conversation and I learning about your career and the businesses, you're a serial entrepreneur. You, you started something, you know, you worked for a company and then the dot-com bubble burst. And, and then, you know, decided to start Frank and Eileen right when the great depression or recession, yeah. great, great recession happened, you know, and then here we are again, why keep going? Why keep stepping up and starting things? That's that's a really good question. The you know the very short answer is I I think I just love being an entrepreneur and I you know I did realize now I guess I'm officially a serial entrepreneur and um and it's been it's been a very rocky road you know up and down over the years and it even that's just such an interesting journey but you know one of the one of the funniest things is one of my lawyers this is a long time ago call, literally called me one day like it was something so important she had to tell me and she said Audrey. I always thought you were a cat because you clearly have nine lives. But I realized today you are not a cat. You are a cockroach and nothing but nuclear devastation can kill you. And I was like, <laughs> that is the best compliment I've ever gotten. And like to this day, I'm like, people ask me, what's the best compliment you've ever gotten? I was like being called a cockroach. I mean, it was so outrageous. Obviously, she's a cat lady. And so the whole thing was so funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I started my first business. Um, I think I was 25 years old and I thought I was 40 and, you know, I had just blind ambition, right? So the, you know, energy for, for days and just keep going, but no experience, right? And I named it after my mom. I was called Una and I had some early success and then, you know, and then some early failure. I mean, ultimately, you know, I had four retail stores. I got caught up in the great recession and, and just, you know, didn't really understand how to, how to plan for a rainy day and that things are, can be completely out of my control. And um, so, you know, so that was a very interesting and painful long learning experience where ultimately I lost my business, but out of the ashes came Frank and Eileen and we literally launched I didn't know it at the time, right? But we were I was building the brand to launch in stores spring 2009. So we we literally launched at at market. We go to market the September before and I was in New York when the entire stock market crashed. Um so it's just wild and you're like here we go. Um you know, so so Frank and Aileen was literally, you know, kind of like born into uh the great recession, which I think in hindsight was was a very interesting way to grow a new brand and an environment to launch in. I mean, I had negative, negative dollars. And um, so, you know, it really between that and I think my engineering background of like really focusing on efficient, you know, eliminating waste, maximizing efficiency, that served me really well in those uh, first five years. You know, it's interesting because I think as making me go back to that time, I, I incorporated my first business the summer of 2008 when my firstborn was three months old. Wow. <laughs> it's like moving forward, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, what I'm struck also by is these, these, I mean, 
losing your businesses, filing bankruptcy, you know, <laughs> things failing. How did that, and maybe it did, but it doesn't seem like it really seeped into your sense of self-worth and your ability to trust yourself. Because you kept, I think there's something about that that kept you going. I'm just curious about what you say to them. Yeah, you're right. That's interesting. Um, I, I kind of never thought about that before, to be honest. Yeah, I think I use them. I mean, as cliche as it sounds, like learning opportunities, right? It's like, well, that didn't work, you know, and that's incredibly painful. But I have this, um, I guess, amazing ability to keep getting back up when I get knocked down. And I think it's one of the things, like, you know, one of my passions is trying to figure out how to be able to teach young girls about entrepreneurship. I think, you know, no one taught me anything and I had to learn it on my own when I was so much older. And I love the idea of teaching young girls in school, the ideas of entrepreneurship and that you can find a problem in the world and build a business to solve it. But you've got to be prepared that you're going to get punched in the face, like almost every day, you're going to get knocked down, you're going to fail. And I think maybe for me, I think no one teaches girls that that's okay. I think they immediately have it reflect, like you said, on their self-worth. Like, I must not be smart enough or maybe boys are, you know, are better at this. And it, and it's like no one ever tells them. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman or a girl, you're going to get knocked down all the time. Like, it's just part of the deal. And you can use it just to, you know, get stronger. And I think ultimately for me, not only am I able to recover from it, I, I think it's built into, like I say, I kind of look forward to these times that 99% of people can't get back up because I know I can. So this is when I have an advantage. How do you know you can? Uh, <laughs> I guess just because I always have, but hmm. I think, um, I don't know. I, I found this new way, you know, when COVID happened, it was, it was so hard for me. So I'm going to go in a roundabout way to tell you, but it was so hard. I was scared I would lose the business. I was scared I would lose my house. I mean, I was scared everything in that in that first like 60 days. It was so much uncertainty. Like, um, and so I had to I had to start this thing where I could be really stressed Monday through Saturday. And on Sunday, I had I created what I called gratitude Sundays. And I was only allowed to think about positive things and think, and I had to write it down and think about things that I was positive for. And so in that, there were so many things, but one of the things I ended up really, I think, being grateful for is I had an incredibly traumatic childhood, like just very, very hard. And it's it's something that you could allow it to define you and, and use as an excuse of why you can't be successful in life or why you can't recover and you have all this trauma, or you can use it to actually make you so strong. And like, if I could survive that, if I could keep getting back up every day in that and thrive, like I can thrive in anything. And so I, I started thinking, you know what, potentially if I'd never been through that, if I'd had a happy, well-balanced, healthy childhood, I probably wouldn't be the way that I am now. And I think it gave me so much drive and so much resilience um, and so much focus on on making sure that I could be 100% independent and take care of myself that I think it gave me that strength. So that was, you know, part of my part of my gratitude Sundays. And I wonder in hearing you talk about your, your earlier traumatic life and and even thinking about my own and and there was a lot of violence in in my home and how there were parts of me that just were driving me to not replicate that and yeah. to create the sense that I did not want to feel stuck. 
That's like the worst thing for me is feeling like stuck or trapped in a situation or in relationships. And um, yeah, I'm just curious how that lands with you. Yeah, I think ultimately, I, I mean, what you're saying, you know, gives me chills. It's like, I think that ultimately that lack of control Mm-hmm. Of, the, of the violence and the trauma as a child made me so dr- like, I think it shaped everything about my life and work. And it made me, it's interesting because people ask me all the time, like, well, why don't you take on VC funding? And I think, I think some of it was conscious and some was unconscious, but it really gave me the resolve to never take on VC funding because I wanted independence. I wanted control. And for me, it didn't matter if I was failing, if I went bankrupt, if I was like, running because I thought that I was going to go to jail. Like I, I would be like, Oh my God, I, I owe money to a bank. And I, you know, I had to Google it and realize there's no debtors prison. So, uh, you know, <laughs> these things are, they're so scary, but for me failing, but being in control of my life and my failure, I think was, was a safer feeling than ever being, you know, having not having control of my life. And so again, wow. I just, I think all of that, has has informed my life in more ways that I knew. I just absolutely want to be independent, whether I'm whether I'm good at it or not good at it. But eventually, I'll figure it out, right? I mean, you fall down enough times, and you're you're going to figure it out. So, if I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, that being dependent or not having like freedom or agency is more terrifying than failing. Am I hearing that Absolutely. correctly? And ah. you know what? I'm, again, I'm like kind of grateful for it. Now, when I when I did go bankrupt, which was, you know, that was a low, that was a low point. That was really hard. But yeah. I remember at the time saying, you know what? At the time, I'm so grateful that I don't have any children right now. I'm not married. Mm-hmm. I don't have any kids. I can go through this pain on my own and I'm going to learn from it and get stronger. And I'll never let this happen to me ever again. I was really glad I learned all those lessons when I could take the burden and the pain on my own. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have to inflict it on anyone else, but it's all such. And I I think though, again, one of the things that if I were to share with people, my entrepreneurship journey is when you, when you face the scariest thing and then you realize it's not that scary, like even all that's not that bad. And I tell people when they're so stressed, I don't get stressed. I used to get very stressed. But honestly, after I went through my bankruptcy and lost my business, I've never been stressed since. And that was back in, you know, 2000. This one happened, you know, during the Great Recession. So this happened between 2009 and 12. It was a long, dragged out process. But I tell people, anytime you feel stress, just ask yourself this question. Whatever's happening right now, can it cause you to die or go to prison? Now, if what's happening, you could die or go to prison, please continue being stressed. It's absolutely worth being stressed about. (laughs) But if whatever's going on is not going to kill you, literally kill you or put you in prison, it's just a problem to be solved. That's it. It's just another problem to be solved. And there's a solution that might be hard and it might take a while, but you just keep, keep chipping away at it. So it's not worth being stressed about because the stress floods your brain and then you can't, you can't problem solve as quickly anyway. So, yeah. And it, it strikes me though, cause I, I, you know, you and I are not the only people that have had <laughs> difficult childhoods and some people have a hard time. Like you could see even in the pandemic, I, and I saw this and I worked with a lot of the leaders I worked with and in my clinical work, all of a sudden stuff that they hadn't dealt with just came back and shut them down. Um, and, but for you, it was, 
energizing. I mean, for you, has this been a lifelong process for you working on? How have you worked through these parts of your story so that those burdens don't take you out and keep taking you out? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer. I think I think I worked through it by creating a life for myself that I wanted. By no. saying, I'm absolutely going to break this cycle. I will not allow myself to put myself in the position that my mom and so many women of her generation were in, right? Um, I just won't do it. I'll make whatever sacrifice I have to. I will never do that. So that was, it was just for me from, I mean, apparently my mom has this, I sat down when I was 10 years old at the kitchen table and had had this plan for my mom of how she was going to escape the abuse and how we were going to be okay and how I was going to take care of her. I had this whole plan at 10, um, which was obviously a little premature and delusional. But from that age, I was always driven, like, I will change this. Like, this is not what my life will look like. I will have you, different choices. And you call it premature and delusional. And I call it foreshadowing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you know, because I think that's the stuff. I mean, that's how like we often think, oh, you had bad things happen and you're ruined. No, it's like there are there is this place where the burdens, you know, they inspire us. And I I I, I feel like that's such a powerful word that you committed to creating the life that you wanted and really fought hard for that. And that Irish stick to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy and fun to talk about it now, but I always would, it was not easy, right? I mean, not easy. And so I think it's been interesting because my daughter Grayson is, is five and we're going through this big process right now of finding the right forever school for her, for her to go to school, either K through eight or K through 12. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot of reflection of like, what do you want for your daughter? And what do you want for her education? And she's five. So some of the things that, you know, that I hear myself saying is I want her, you know, first of all, to be a lifelong learner. That's great. But I want her to learn grit and resilience. Like if she can learn those things, I really think everything else will take care of itself. Like you just have to have drive and grit and resilience. And I think those are the biggest indicators of long-term success, whatever that might mean to you, right? Success is different to everyone. But if you want something and you you want to reach for it, you have to have the grit and resilience to break down all the barriers, turn no's into yeses, turn failures into learning experiences. It's a, it's a long, long, long journey. And I, I always say it takes I used to say it takes five years of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. And then I had to cross out the five and replace it with a 10. It's like it takes 10 years of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. So um, at least, yeah, at least, right? You cross out the 10 and 15. So it's a long journey. Well, Um, until we breathe our last breath. I mean, let's, I mean, there is it is a long journey. You know, you talk about grit and resilience and those are words I've been rumbling with a lot. And I just heard an interview. I think it was with Adam Grant. He had a book that just came out uh, and he talked about grit and he's like, sometimes we celebrate the work, but if what you're working on isn't helping you or the greater good, then I'm not going to celebrate grit. I thought that was an interesting nuance. And then resilience. I think a lot of people forget, misunderstand resilience and that resilience is not about not feeling horrible. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. about being able to recalibrate 
and admits feeling horrible and still be able to kind of maintain your sense of worthiness and your wherewithal in that. Right. I think sometimes resilience gets glamorized. Like I'm so resilient. I'm like, no, if you chill, <laughs> that's not resilience. Yeah. Resilience is exactly, I think how you define, you know, what happened to us in March, 2020 and how, yep. you know, how we ended up pivoting and what we look like a year later. Right. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot longer just like, I don't know what to do. This is so hard. I heard other leaders that would be, I do also think women are better equipped to handle crisis. Um, but I would hear particularly mm -hmm. male leaders and male CEOs, they were just so focused on like, but this has been, I built this over my entire life. How did I just lose my life's work in a matter of months? And I'm like, well, why did you just spend 10 minutes talking about that? Well, like what's next? Like, let's focus on get back up and what's next? How do you pivot? How do you take everything you've ever learned and done to now adapt to what's going on today? You didn't lose it all. You didn't waste it. It just, it took a turn you didn't expect, but use all of that experience to figure out how do we adapt to, to what we're living in now? Yeah. I, this has got me thinking about ease. I think sometimes I think like I built this, I got my ease and I lost it all. And you're like, well, yeah. And then now move on. You lost this thing. Right. And, uh, but that it's, it's such, and I think people have different relationships with grief and also their work and their identity. They, if they're mm -hmm. so externalized in their, yeah. I am who you say I am. And I'm, they're so paralyzed by what are people going to think that creativity and innovation and of course, resilience can't happen there. So Gosh, this is a real nuance. I love this conversation. I want to jump in and just talk about your eclectic background in for someone who is in the field. Because I have, I mean, my I've got an undergrad degree in journalism and public relations and worked in the United States Senate <laughs> right after and then advertising, did youth work internationally, and then came back, got a master's in marriage wow. and family therapy, ran a business, and now doing leadership work. <laughs> but every single thing I've done helps me be amazing at what I'm doing in the moment I build it's like building on everything and so you're you have an industrial engineer background and now owner of Frank and Eileen and Grace Grayson's your other company correct yep. yeah so how has your background in engineering influenced the way you approach business and design yeah I think it's turned out to serve me so well especially you know on the business side but I would say you know, engineering makes you a black belt in problem solving. Huh. So if one thing that, that entrepreneurs need is like a PhD problem. in problem solving, right? And that will serve you forever. And, you know, in terms of my background, you know, my, my family immigrated from Ireland and my parents, my mom really was the driving force. Like, you know, if we, this is in the seventies, like, oh, if we go to America, you could, you could be anything, right? I'm going to create a better life for our children. So I grew up here and my, you know, my mom was always like, look, you, in America, we came here. You can do anything you want. You can be anything. Like Audrey, this is America. You can be anything as long as you're a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So like, <laughs> wow. Thanks. So, you know, growing up, I just, I always loved math and science. My dad was an engineer. So I just went to engineering school. I mean, I literally only applied to one school. I applied to Georgia tech. I went to Georgia tech. I studied engineering, but now, and I, I kind of hated it. Like I really did hate engineering school. Georgia tech is very tough. So if there's any industrial engineers out of there from Georgia tech, we would love you on our team. Um, it's a, it's a really <laughs> hard environment to make it through. When you start, they sit you in this huge auditorium and they say, everybody look to your left, look to your right neither one of those people will graduate with you. 
So this whole thing of like, I think grit and the resilience, like it was built in from not only my childhood, but my childhood went straight to Georgia Tech where they tell you only one out of three of you will make it through this program. And you're like, oh my gosh. And sure enough, I mean, very few of, of the people that I was that I was friends with ever made it through the engineering program, right? They may make it through school, but um and so I think, and then ultimately, so not only, you know, engineering gives you a black belt in problem solving. So all engineers, I really think have that. And they, they make for very good entrepreneurs. Industrial engineering specifically, the simple way for me to say is it like trains me to think long-term because it's very much about like systems and efficiency. And so you really think about how every single choice that I make today, how does that get kind of go into the system and affect the, you know, the long-term effects, like what are we trying to build? And so you're very careful about what you add kind of to the system um, that could create waste or that, that wouldn't make you as efficient. And, um, you know, so I think industrial engineers specifically make very good business leaders long-term um, because of the way that they think. I mean, Tim Cook is maybe one of the most uh, famous industrial oh. CEOs. Yeah. So when you think about why he's so good at what he does, I really think it's his, you know, background and his training. Um, but yeah, so I think ultimately like, and especially in, if you're going to build a business and you're self-funded, that's a whole separate skill set, right. Versus getting VC funding and, and you, you don't, you know, can cut through all the, uh, all the fine capitalization problems, but you have to learn to be very, very efficient and, very good at editing in every way. Like in fashion, I just happen to choose to be in the fashion business. Being a, a really strong editor is very important. You have to all, you know, we over design and then it, all the magic is in the editing. Like you have to have the discipline to edit, but that, hmm. that applies to every aspect of the business. So every team that you have needs to be very edited. You need the exact right people in the right positions to work in, in the, highest level of efficiency. Yeah. It's, and it's really hard, <laughs> but, but thinking that way is, is the first step, right? Executing is very hard, but thinking that way, I think is, it, it ties into my engineering background and like how I was trained to think and problem solve. And um, so, yeah, so I'm, I ended up, thank you, mom, for making me be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. So, <laughs> You know, I'm struck by the, I'm struck by Alana keeps saying that in our interview, I'm like, oh my gosh, so many braid explosions that you use the word um, editing, the power of editing. And that is a really important discipline. It is a powerful practice for a business owner, for a leader, for an entrepreneur to be able to, we get so emotionally connected, whether it's to your words or to an idea. That's been such a powerful key learning for me because I would just like everything I thought of, I would try to do. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have time for all of this. Well, that's right. It's like the power of no. I mean, ultimately, and I think it's funny that it's another um, Apple reference, kind of funny, but a Steve Jobs reference. I remember reading 10, 15 years ago, um, somebody on his team said uh, that the most important skill that Steve Jobs has is the ability to say no to almost everything. And so I think that's really big because it doesn't really probably matter what industry you're in, especially when you start to have some success people want you to be everything all of a sudden, right? Like when mm. we launched Strike and Eileen 12 years ago, I reinvented the button up for women. I made the greatest button up still that stands the test of the time 12 years later is the Barry button up. It's like the greatest fitting shirt ever. And, me, and it was a huge success. And not only was it a huge success, 
in, in the US. But then we launched in Japan and we became, it took years, but we became the number one brand in Japan. And so I had, you know, the best specialty stores in the US, whether it was, you know, a Fred Siegel, Ron Herman, I have the like best stores in Japan, all, all of a sudden, they're like, great, well, can then Frank and Eileen make cargo pants and the shoes you're wearing and the, and the cashmere sweater that you put over the bear, like everyone all of a sudden wanted me to make everything I was wearing right? Can you, do this? Can you do this? And the answer to everything was no, no. I make the best button up shirt ever. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And we actually only had one silhouette, which was the berry for five years. That's all we built the business with. And we, we brought it to life through beautiful textile development with our Italian partners, but it was just one silhouette in hundreds of fabrications, you know, over the five years. And it was just this discipline of editing and saying, no, 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 until I felt like the business was had a strong enough foundation in terms of identity, brand, supply chain, you know, capitalization to say, all right, now we're ready to add our second silhouette. And so it was a very, very slow discipline grow for the first 10 years. Yeah, that's a lot of restraint. And I, I think that's a message, though, that I hear a lot in the entrepreneur space, you know, focusing on your signature offer, your one do one thing well, and not a bunch of things well. And it's do so tempting. better than anybody else. And Ooh. then you expand there. But if oh, you're trying boy. to do 10 things at once, there's no way you can do 10 things better than anyone else. But you could do one thing better than anyone else. I agree wholeheartedly. And then, and then you build a you build a, a trust with your customer. And we talked about it earlier, right? This word trust is such a simple word, but it has in such deep meaning. And if your customer can trust you with what you've told them, you, you do this better than anyone. They'll let you do some a second thing and they will automatically trust you do it better with anyone. Now, as long as you don't break that trust along the way, you can keep offering them you know, either new product or new categories. And eventually they almost take it for granted. Well, obviously you can do pants because you've been making the best shirts and the best, you know, whatever, and they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so, but I think that's very powerful. You have to do, you know, one thing better than anybody else first. Rest and restraint I think, requires a lot of trust and really a lot of belief. A marketing friend of mine says, you know, she's like, we're all paying too much for marketing. You have to become obsessed with your own brand, your own mm -hmm. business and be able to communicate it and not pay money out for that. And then yeah. maybe down the road, but you have to be obsessed with that. That's a and, shout I mean, out to the, Rachel one K. Albers. One of the dirty little secrets, one of the easiest ways to have restraint is to have no money. Right. So just, <laughs> totally. you know, don't people always think they need so much money. They want to take on so much money, but it's actually so much harder to have restraint and discipline when you have too much money. Now oh. there's also a whole, you know, when you have VC money in particular, you can't have restraint, right? Because now you also have the demand to grow unnaturally fast. So yes. it's a completely different strategy of growing a business um, and growing a brand. And there's pros and cons to both, right? But but having restraint, you know, one of the easiest ways is just not having any money. It will force you to be like hyper vigilant, hyper folk, like edit everything. You're going to squeeze every last drop out of every last dollar and you'll never do anything that isn't, you know, the best use of the limited funds that you have. So that can help you look even more disciplined than you really are. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I think that's the upside of it. A lot of people think, oh, I can't do this because I have these financial constraints versus, okay, let's flip the script a little bit on that. And what can we do with what we have? I love it. So Mm -hmm. I want to just wrap up bragging a little bit about, let's, let's brag about Frank and Eileen. You mentioned, (laughs) you know, it's a hundred percent women owned and led business and it really is steeped not only in the greater good, but making everyone feel good when they wear their clothes. I'm wearing like the button, I'm wearing the denim button now, but I'm obsessed with your caplets. I was just looking at the cap. I'm like, oh, I need to get a gray one now too. Um, I love well, I had to go an entire, I have like in my room, I have a big closet and then this tiny closet. Like I think when they built the, house, <laughs> the wife's closet and the husband's closet, that's what I say. But I get both. So, but I had to devote an entire closet basically to the capelet series. So I have like, we have four, we launched with the original capelet, which is my obsession. And then I got, then I got chilly. Basically I was wearing it every day for like eight months. Like we almost have no weather in LA, right? But we have mild fluctuations that people in LA take very seriously. Like it's freezing and it's like 65. Um, And so I put sleeves on, I just literally added sleeves and that's the long sleeve capelet. And then it got deeper winter. It was like January. And I was like, Ooh, I really wish I could be wearing like a a turtleneck or a funnel neck. And I just added a little funnel neck on it. So that's our funnel neck long sleeve capelet. I know that's the one I'm buying. (laughs) Oh, so and that's like our number one selling ever is the funnel neck long sleeve capelet. But then it became March. Maybe we had a little heat wave, March, April, I started getting hot. So I just cut the sleeves off again. And then it became a funnel neck capelet. And that is my personal number one favorite. Um, I run hot. I don't know if it's a redhead thing, but so I love it. And I, it looks good. And I, I, I have like an entire section just of white because I want to dress head to toe in white every day. But I have a, I have a daughter, I have a dog, I have a coffee problem. So I literally just do like outfit changes and, and it's all machine washable. So it's so easy. But like if I, if I get my white outfit dirty in the middle of the day, I just like throw on another white one and it's, um, yeah, it's fantastic. So oh. whenever I'm not wearing button ups, I'm always wearing the capelet series. So it's capelet, not caplet. So yeah. capelet. Yes. I got the original. I got two of the original. Now I'm eyeing the funnel with the short sleeve. So oh, that's everything. Yes. It's, oh, it's amazing. And white is the best, but every color is fantastic. I've got white and black. So of course, it's just I've got the <laughs> basics. And I got a, a white tank top and a black tank top I wear under each and I can mix oh, it up if I want just the basics. Um, but I, I'm curious, I don't even know if this is correct because I, I call Frank and Eileen, I don't know, I'm not in the fashion world. I call you a luxury brand because mm-hmm. I mean, the price point's higher, the quality is higher. Is that accurate to call you a luxury yeah. brand? Think, okay. To me, I think that's a great word. We're not designer, right? It's, you know, we're not like Celine or something, but I think, <laughs> In the everyday, you know, contemporary world, it is, it's like luxury classic pieces. It's like things that you can wear every single day. We call it like lived in luxury, right? So it's Mm. easier buying sweatshirts and sweatpants. You're buying, you know, Italian button ups, but then are intentionally crinkled. So, oh, I'm, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a new prototype that you'll love. I can tell, but this is our Jody. So our Jody's named after my sister, Jody. And she's a size small, but she only buys large. She buys everything in large. So we created this menswear inspired oversized button up and named it Jody because basically it already fits like a large. Um, and it's, and it's beautiful. You can, it's, it's made with the finest single yarn in the world. It's called super fine. And if you press it, it's, I mean, it's gorgeous and crisp. But, oh. And we had it out for maybe a year or two. And, and the Jody in white is our number one selling button up. Um, at this time. And, but so now coming out in 2021, I think it launches for fall, but you know, we're always designing a year ahead, but we took the Jody and white that is everyone's obsession and we crinkled it. 
So that's what we originally launched with 12 years ago was our famous crinkle. So I literally just took one quality of beautiful Italian poplins, made it into this berry silhouette, and we would crinkle it, which makes it the best travel shirt ever. I mean, you can just wad them up into balls and shove them into your suitcase. So when we're My all kind of packing. And exactly. I mean, I lived on the road. So I would just shove all these little crinkled shirts and then you show up and put it on and look like a million dollars. There's no fold lines in your shirt. You don't have to take out the ironing board in your hotel room. And so for the first time in 12 years, it's a really big deal for us. We're crinkling our second silhouette, which will be the Jody. So where everybody's like waiting on the edge of their seats for it. And I get to, I get to wear the prototype and, and be so happy. <laughs> and I get to see, it's like I got a little collar that you got popped, which I like. Um, this one's kind of cool because it, it can go down the one I'm wearing right now. Um, I, I'd love for, as we wrap up here, how you differentiate Eileen, Frank and Eileen from other brands. How do you talk about like how maybe in, in the same space, how do you differentiate Frank and Eileen from other brands? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, as I mentioned, we went almost 12 years ago, or actually next month is our 12th birthday. We launched 100% wholesale, right? I mean, it was a different world 12 years ago. And so we always look at like, you know, how are we differentiated against our peers in the contemporary space? And I think maybe the easiest way to explain is like, we're a deeply personal brand, right? And we've grown very organically. Like I told you, we had one silhouette for five years. Um and I think in the context of so that even makes us stand out and in, in being very unique within our kind of wholesale contemporaries. But now, fast forward 12 years, we're in this DTC world and all these brands are coming out and they look so perfect. And we end up kind of saying like they look like they're manufactured in like a branding studio or by this super fancy agency. And and Frank and Eileen is the opposite. It's just been very organic. I mean, it's built out of out of like my Irish roots and my family's Irish heritage and my obsession with these like best in the world Italian fabrics. And, you know, then ultimately now really talking about our 12 year long sustainable practices. And we've never chased trends. We're like very timeless classics, just these like lived in pieces that you want to, you know, I mean, kind of like celebrate your life, right? You have this like beautiful life, but you should be living it in, in like these beautiful, simple pieces. Um, and you know, I think our, you know, whether it's our, whether it's our wholesale customers or our direct customers, they always just tell us that we're completely unique, that there's nothing else like us. And I think some of it's something you can't pinpoint. You can, you can talk about product and product differentiation, but I think it's, some of it is like the feeling. It's like that feeling when you come into our magical Irish country house in downtown LA or in the middle of New York city, like you just walk in and you're, you're almost overwhelmed. Like you get transported to a different place in a different time. And I think that is, you know, some of the things that make the the brand so special and differentiated and, and we're very much just who we are, right? We've like never chased trends. We've never grown too fast. We've never taken on VC funding. We've never sold, you know, as we've grown in wholesale, you know, we never followed the strategies that were, you know, traditional strategies to, to follow, to grow really fast. We just chose a different way. Um, and we grow it very like this, like, you know, we treat our, our supply chain partners like family. We treat our employees like family and we treat right. our customers like family. I think it's a very different feeling. Well, I, and that's what stands out to me because you, 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 even when you talk about your supply chain, you treat them like family. You're not dehumanizing. There isn't objectifying or dehumanizing. You really are working with people and that translates to your product clearly and to your brand. So I'm right. sold <laughs> for life. Aww, thank you. Thank you. you know, Ajay, I really thank you for taking the time 
to for this conversation. I know so many are going to get out of a lot out of it. I know I already have, and I'll be buzzing about it today. And I know Frank and Eileen will be around for a while, but I also will be following you for a while. I am really grateful for your leadership and your story and your example. It's so needed right now, especially as we're kind of coming out of this really hard year. Um, I know that a lot of people are going to be looking to you for wisdom and guidance. So thank you for your presence. As I, it, That in itself and how you lead is making such a difference. In addition to the wonderful pieces you're making, you're creating communities and businesses that are calling people up and and making people feel better and, and come into their own. So thank you. Grateful. I mean, I want to thank you. Thank you for like the most pleasant conversation and interview. I always get nervous to talk to people, but I think we have like a redheaded comfort situation. I was like, I'm always so excited to meet a fellow redhead. So, but thank you so much. I think, I think you asked such great questions to share with your audience. And I, I think as, you know, as I get further into my entrepreneurship journey, I get really excited about any impact I could make on a young entrepreneur about, you know, anything that, that she's nervous about or, you know, questions or is this normal? And so hopefully I think, you know, some of your questions might have, have helped answer some of those and, and taken some of the, you know, fear factor and, and out of it for them. I have no doubt. And you and I both know when women are making money and running businesses and contributing, the world is a better place. So absolutely. And as, as my five-year-old daughter said, the day after inauguration this year, holding my hand, going up the elevator to hip hop, she turned to me and looked up and said, mommy, you know, girls are going to take over the world, right? And I was like, yes, you are. And all, we're all going to help you do it. It was just like the cutest moment. So yeah, anything I can do to help help this younger generation and, and, and women of every generation take over the world, I'm, I'd, I'd be humbled to be part of that. It's time we reclaim it <laughs> for sure. Thank you again, Audrey. I am so excited for people to hear this conversation and so grateful to have the honor to meet with you today. Thank you. Have a good week. When we underestimate ourselves, we underestimate the impact of the decisions we make. Audrey shared with us how she could not afford to underestimate herself last March when the pandemic hit. Too much was at stake. And because of the little decisions she and her team made for the last 12 years, they were left to lean on a foundation that reflected their values and beliefs as they responded to the global crisis. Not only did they land on their feet, they accomplished long-term goals that were bigger than the company. And I love the reminder that Frank and Eileen was born during the Great Recession, so it was built on decisions informed by those challenging times. What do your decisions say about you, especially the little ones? What is unacceptable to you? What inspires the decisions you make? And how do you approach the problems that come up in your life? I know so many of you are grown from personal and professional struggle and pain, and that pain and struggle inspires you to do life and work differently, so not to be beholden or repeat the pain in your story. All the little decisions are so important and are an investment in your desired future. When you're in the weeds and have a hard time seeing the end, stay the course, ask for help, keep showing up for you, your vision, and what you believe in. It is so worth it. And you are so worth it. Reading is hard. 
Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. You do not mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, the Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. Start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me. Go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.